0: So, okay, I admit I'm a hopeless romantic. There's just no way around it, and um, I I tried desperately to think of something else, and I just couldn't. I've shown this clip before, so for those of you that have been in this study for very long, I hope you're not bored, but for the rest of you, watch with me because I think this captures so perfectly what we're after. Watch this with me. Um, This is actually taken, I'll tell you, this is actually taken from Last of the Mohicans. I think it's the most classic line in there. And it's really, I'm going to go on and tell you what I'm going to say after. It really conveys um, what God is for us. And um, there's a desperation in this scene, and you will see it, and you will feel it. And um, it's talked about in a book called Captivating by John and Stassi Eldridge. And um, so watch this with me now. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Well, anyway, let's move on. But you get it. Just technical difficulties. So he's what he's saying is, you stay alive. Because he sa- he tells her, prior to this, he's telling her what's going to happen. They're going to take you. You submit to them. They're going to do things to you. It doesn't matter. Whatever they do, it doesn't matter. You stay alive. You do whatever it takes. There's desperation. And you know, deep inside this this book, Captivating, what it, what it talks about is that deep inside of the heart of every little girl or every woman is this desire to be the, um, the beauty, to have the bad guys get us and a hero come and rescue us. But what they go on to say is the hero is not who you think it is. It's not your knight riding in on a you know, white horse that you thought about as a little girl. It's God himself. And they go on to talk about how um, there's a Hebrew scholar who translated the book of Genesis. His name is Robert Alter. And um, he said this, there's a phrase used, the very first time it's used for Eve, and it's called Ezer Ezer. E-Z-E-R, and it is when you need someone to rescue you desperately. And they say it's just difficult to translate it, but it really is a description of God himself when you need him to come through for you. And you know, that's really, God is calling us all to a life filled with danger. Not a safe life. I mean, you don't need someone to rescue you if you're sitting on your couch. You don't need that. You need someone to rescue you when you have laid your life out there on the line in some way, some shape, some form. And that's what I think we're talking about here. Because you see, ladies, our lives are in danger. If you didn't understand that or get that before the lesson today. And what we're going to look at are really three aspects of a rescue mission that God has mounted on your behalf. And we need to be rescued, see, because the danger, Will Robinson, Willa, whatever your name is out here, females, is because we have a great enemy, we've got a great enticement, but thankfully, we serve a God who has given us a great escape. So let's look at those three things. And I do hope you are feeling merciful for me now, right here and right now, as it's 1137 and I have 20 minutes, basically, to tell you all about Satan, sin, waging war, and freedom. I mean, my goodness, that's just no big deal, is it? I'm like, are you serious? No wonder you're late getting in here. There's so much to cover. It's so big. And so I'm going to try to make it as simple as possible, I have to say. I, I just couldn't get around it any other way but to try to be simplistic. So I love how our lesson took us to the story of Adam and Eve, where it all began in the first place. And what we realize very quickly in the in the, the Genesis story is that they didn't initiate evil, Adam and Eve. It was already there. It was there. It was on the scene when man was created. So to get the big scheme of things, you fast forward all the way to the book of Revelation, and what you see is you get a little better depiction or description of who the tempter is that came in the book of Genesis. What we find is he's called a lot of things, but in Revelation twelve at eight, it, it tells us he's the great dragon. He was thrown down. He's the serpent of old, who's called the devil and Satan. Ah, that's who he was. He in he in uh, what do you call it? There's some you know mighty power morphin ranger thing he morphed into the body of this serpent satan did he inhabited the 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 serpent but you know that's why the serpent was speechless at the end when god was asking everybody what did you do and what was your part the serpent didn't have anything to say because the serpent's like man i was just standing around and (laughs) something took over my body and satan he was gone he left the scene and so the serpent has what can he say i'm like what happened to me what was that Boy, can I relate to that. So let's look very quickly. Who is Satan? So let's define him. The first thing is understanding who he is. He's the adversary. If he's God's adversary, it should go, the logical way of things is if you sitting here in this room belong to God, then, if then, statement, you know, remember that's from school, then it just goes to say that he is your adversary as well. He is against you. And any great general in war knows that when waging for war and don't think for a moment that we're not in war, we must know our enemy. Um, In our small group this morning, one of the women was talking about her son playing high school football. And she said, well, it's the same thing in sports. She said, you know what, every Saturday, they get together and they watch films and they see, they watch the game film and they learn where they where they fell down. No condemnation, but hey, that guy scored a touchdown because you didn't make your block. And um, we just talk about where you were weak and how you can overcome it the next week. And then we look at the opponent and we study him. And we learn how every guy, how he plays his role, what he does, what are his moves, what is he, and we study. Very. That's exactly the same thing that's spoken of here. It's the same thing. So, um, who is Satan? Well, he goes by lots of names in Scripture. He's the deceiver, the tempter, the destroyer, the devil, the serpent of old, the father of lies, the accuser, the thief, the murderer, the destroyer, the prince of of this world, and there are many others. But what he is is an angelic creature. That's the first thing we've got to understand. And you know what? That's rather shocking when you really meditate on that. Because, you see, prior to Genesis, to the Genesis account, there was... um, Creation of angels, they, they had existed. They already pre-existed. Somewhere God created them back in time. And their job was simply to worship and serve God. And Satan was the highest of these. Here's what it says for us in Ezekiel. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, for crying out loud, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The workmanship of your settings was in you on the day you were created. Ezekiel twenty-eight twelve. He was an angel like no other. He was the anointed, chosen cherub. His job was to be the honor god in the, and stand in the very presence of God. But you see, that's, we need to learn the second thing about him. He's the original rebel. So James Dean doesn't have anything on him. No, no, Satan had it. At some point in eternity past, Satan mounted a rebellion against God. Isaiah 14, 12 tells us this. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of dawn. That phrase, star of the morning, is actually a proper name. And that name is Lucifer. And we've all seen that one played out in horror movies, etc., etc. But the name's actually used in Latin for the planet Venus. It's the brightest of all stars. So that's Lucifer. He was the angel who most reflected the glory of God. Um, He stood in God's presence, and yet he rebelled. Okay, this should be sobering it's very sobering for me i hope it is very sobering for you the bible provides very little information about the fall but what is clear is that we see fallen angels working throughout the rest of scripture throughout the rest of god's story so what we're clear about is he took some with him it wasn't satan's deal on his own he mounted a coup against the, the power um, and with him he he took others that have fallen and we're told that some are imprisoned and some are with him roaming around here in in their kingdom on this earth um, to to you know cause death and destruction so he is also finally the great pretender I think again you could go back to rock and roll but he is the great pretender in his goal um, Of rebellion. In his rebellion, his goal was to be like God, and that sounds a whole lot like the ploy he put up to Eve in the Garden of Eden. Remember? Oh, you know, you could, you know, look, you could be like. Um, So he takes what he wanted himself, and he tries to impose it on us and tempt us with the very thing that drew him away. Um, He doesn't fit the typical stereotypes. Um, at least not initially. There's no red suit, no no horns, no pitchfork in hand. As a matter of fact, Satan, usually in my life, he looks good. He looks really good. That's who he really is. He's pretending. And no wonder, Second Corinthians 11, to 14 tells us, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of life. And that Ladies is the very thing that makes him so insidious. It's the same thing we teach our kids now about stranger danger. You see, okay, I'm old, but when you're in your 50s, what we were taught as little kids was to watch out for the mean guys. And um, that's how we were taught about, about danger, is watch out for the guys that look. I mean, we, we had pictures of them as being, you know, the rough on the outside edges and tumble and stay away from the guys that are mean. You, you know the bad guys, just stay away from them. But you know what? Over time, something has changed as our as our um, police forces have learned who really does perpetrate crimes against children. And what we know is it's not the bad looking guy, it's the guy offering candy or a puppy or just ploying on your good nature of, can you just give me directions, I'm kind of lost. Those are the ones you got to watch out for. Not the bad guys. Not, not that the mean guys and bad guys aren't out there. But man, they disguise themselves just like Satan did. He really is the ultimate stranger danger so what's he trying to do what's he what's he up to well when he and his followers fell their natures changed and they became reprobate that's just all there is to it his power is immense and we shouldn't mess with him that's the that's a huge thing here and Todd this past summer taught a whole series on temptation and that was one of the key things is man who are you kidding and he had all kinds of illustrations for that the the little lion cub etc etc and if you weren't here you need to go Online and watch it, but you get the fact that it the, that he is powerful. He's immense. I loved Jude nine. Jude is only it's it's just there's no chapter. It's Jude and then the verses. That's all there is. So Jude nine. Don't think I left out something that tells us, even Michael, the archangel, did not bring a rebuke against Satan, but said, the Lord will rebuke you. I mean, he knew better than to go against Satan himself. So again, who do we think we are, thinking, I got this under control, I'm I'm in control of this, that's where we get in trouble. So his work is twofold. He really, primarily, I think, other scholars might say he does a lot of other things, but I can only net it down to two. He opposes God, for one, and he opposes God's people. He wanted to be like God. Remember, make no mistake, he wants to take heaven by force. That's what he's after. Um, You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will make myself like the Most High. Read Isaiah 14. You will see all kinds of I will statements. Satan claiming, laying claim to heaven and to the kingdom that will reign forever. Then he wants to oppose God's people. I love how in our, our lesson, we went to 1 Peter um, 5.8. It was one of the verses, uh, a verse that you could look up on the side, that Satan, who is he? He's like a roaring lion prowling around seeking someone to devour. Okay, now this is not talking about God. This is talking about on this earth. He is looking for one of us. Because you know what? He doesn't need to attack his own. I mean, we get that. We already know that, you know, a house divided falls. Satan knows that too. He's not after his own bad guys. He's after the good guys, you and me. If you called Christ your Lord and Savior, he is after you. He's opposing you. His goal is to discredit God and to discredit God's people and ultimately their testimony, if he can, and Finally, to kill them. I mean, John 10.10 says the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Destroy. That's as in the end. So he literally stands in God's presence. Go back and remember the book of Job. Where Where was he at the opening of the book of Job? He was standing in God's presence accusing Job in front of God. Day and night, we're told, he has these accusations. And the thing about him is that I think his attacks... Get us sometimes when we least expect it. Believe it or not, when we're in the middle of doing ministry. I know you can't believe this, but it's true, and I can tell you why, because I just came back from Africa not very long ago. We have a team, and one of the things we talk about is about midway through the week, if you've ever seen a prayer calendar, we say, pray against the attack of the enemy, because you know what? Pretty soon, that person on your team is kind of just getting on your nerves, or whatever, and let me tell you, the, the last trip we took wasn't this, but this is what it turned out to be. We had one of our team members who was set... To go out, we had all these children that couldn't afford school fees, so they would gather out. They knew something was going on in this little you know, stand-up building that we were teaching in. They would hang in the windows as we would talk all day. But they, we went out twice a day to teach them, and so one of the girls was going out to teach the Bible story. Now, she was doing the story of creation, a story she knows very well. But do you know what? She called all the boys around her. She sat down, boys and girls, I have a story to tell you. Um, I can't remember it goes <laughs> and she said to her teammate could you tell the story because my friend is going to tell gone zip no, no words she came in she was like what was that what happened to that the story of creation a story i know so well and you know what we had to say the attack of satan He's going to steal your words right out of your mouth. Good words, words meant to bring life to people who are living in bondage and death. So it shouldn't surprise us. So just imagine, if you can, standing and serving in God's presence. If the angel that did that and was appointed to serve the living God could fall, then what about you and me? Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed Lest he fall, first Corinthians ten twelve, make no mistake, Satan is alive and active in this world, and as believers, he is after us, so we must be on guard and never surprise at his attack, and then he will attack, and but it, again it's going to look really good, and that takes us to the great enticement, our second point. Just like we saw in the lesson with Eve and Jesus, we too are going to be tempted to sin, and it's going to look really good. In both cases, Satan attacked three primary things, and in your lesson, you actually spelled them out. The lust of the eyes or the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. This actually comes, it's, that theme is throughout Scripture, because obviously it was there in, in um, the Garden of Eden with Eve. It was with Jesus when he went into the wilderness. It's all the way to the end, and, and we see it actually in 1 John two sixteen, For all that is in the world, this world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the father but is of this world so these are the typical things that if he done it from the beginning and he did it to jesus he's gonna keep using these same ploys with you and so what do they look like the flesh well now maybe you're sitting here thinking i'm not tempted in my flesh i mean i i've never had a sexual sin that's just not me i'm not tempted that way well that's good for you and um can't say the same for me necessarily but that's good for you but let me tell you flesh means more than sexual sin Um, As a matter of fact, really, where that all starts, I think it starts with how we feel. It's relying on our feelings, which are of our flesh. Flesh here, to me, means feelings. I feel unhappy, or I feel like I'm in love with this boy in high school. I feel, oh my gosh, I can't eat, I can't sleep. I mean, I'm, surely that's love, and what does that look like? And I get all caught up in my feelings, and then I feel disappointed in my own marriage, and I, I have all these feelings. I mean, I, I, I just, I feel nothing. I'm dead, I don't feel anything to my husband. I mean, as a matter of fact, he really irks me. Um, I mean, those are feelings, and we can, Satan can pull us into his web by relying on how we feel. He did the same with Jesus, trying to appeal to how how he would feel. And then there's the eyes. Um He shows us things that are visible, visible and temporary glories in the world, um, whether it comes as a piece of fruit in the garden, whether it comes as a handsome man telling us how bright and awesome we are, how great we are at our job or whatever it is, you know, or if it's the kingdom of the world, kingdoms of the world, as he did with Jesus. We're visual creatures as humans, and you see, Jesus was man and and God, and so Satan went after his visual. As well and and tried to pull him in we respond to things we see big houses nice cars pretty clothes, beautiful people we respond to them if we didn't what in the world would all those magazines be doing at the checkout line in the grocery store we just you're just drawn to them I don't even care and I not even believe them but yet I'm like reading about uh, whatever happened I just I just my my eyes are just drawn there and I'm wanting to read about all the beautiful people and what they're doing and what's up and we end up starting to value the the creation more than the creator and that ladies is what you call idolatry and jesus spoke against it he used the word in deuteronomy 5 7 and 8 we should worship god alone not what we see And then we've got pride. And Satan just loves to tempt us with greatness, loftiness, being something, doing something. I don't care what you call it. But why? Because he himself longs for it. He wants to be God after all, remember? The greatest of all. So why wouldn't he tempt us with being the smartest, the brightest, the cutest, the most godly? I mean, let's take the good things. I mean, the most disciplined in my Bible study, the one who always has all the answers, um, the one who does all of her scripture memory, who knows all the way 119 with psalm 119 all the way through verse 8 maybe 9 and 10 because you know i'm an overachiever i mean he's after you that's that's appealing to pride to look at me i've just got it all together i'm i've got a nice little package here and what we've got to understand is that though all those things bring us glory they really don't bring god glory and God doesn't care about that. And so what he cares about are the things that are counterintuitive. And by golly, I already had this written when Martin, Martin Messenger wrote his journey yesterday, but he actually used the term. If you read it, he talked about using counterintuitive thinking. And that is exactly what's needed here. We have to be willing to be foolish rather than wise, the least rather than the greatest, serve rather than be served, weak rather than strong. What? That is so hard for me to get my hands around. I so want to be strong. And this and that. I don't want to look weak to you. I don't want to pride. Uh, duh, that's pride. Satan gets a big charge out of temptiness, ladies. And perhaps you missed the series on temptation this summer, but... I have never seen a better example of how Satan works than with the marshmallow experiment. Do we have it? Let's take a look. If you missed it, I want you to watch what happens to little kids who are tempted and what that looks like. And what I want you to see is the agony that goes on. I mean, really watch. Some just give in. No problem. Others are agonizing over the temptation that that they see. So tick-tock, tick-tock, hold on. Have it now, or you can wait. Okay? I'll be back. Stay in the chair, okay? You need them. Success never tasted so sweet. (laughs) So, just like you saw Suzanne leave the room here um, and the temptation right in front of the kids, there's a principle as adults that we too need to remember the teacher never talks during the test. And in my life, what that means is, I will be tested. God doesn't leave me, but sometimes he's silent in the middle of the test. And that's happened in my life. I cried out, and I just didn't think he was answering. Where are you, God? Why is this happening? Nothing. Okay, the teacher doesn't talk during the test. But let's not forget that God never leaves us or forsakes us. And that no temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. And that God is faithful. And with the temptation, he'll provide what? The way of escape. So let's be women today who learn not to trust how we feel. Man, when people use that word, challenge it every time, it's not about how you feel. It's about what we know his word tells us is true. And that takes us to the great escape. God has given us a great gift, and it is freedom, in fact. But the very nature of freedom implies that you need freedom from something, that you've been caught by something, that you are entangled, ensnared, enslaved. I don't care what the term is that you use, but you don't need set free if you weren't a captive. Back. To the last of the Mohicans, she's being taken captive. I love it. I love that film. So it tells us so, perp- per- so perfectly, slow down, that we've been caught, all of us, every one of us in this room. So what do we need freedom from as women? And I think really there are two things um, that scripture in this passage we looked at back in the garden. There were two things, and the first is you're, they're going to kind of surprise you. The first, I think, is we need to be free from the pull of control. Um, I think one of the effects of being a daughter of Eve, and I'm going to just I'm going to just show you Eve because my good friend Tawny actually found me this wonderful T-shirt. And this is Eve. If you can't see her, I'm going to show for the camera now. This is Eve. Can you see her? There she is, Eve in all of her glory on a T-shirt. Eve in the garden, and Eve is hiding behind this leaf, this fig leaf. There she is, right there. There's Eve. So there we are. Every one of us, as a woman in this room, we are a daughter of Eve. And because of that, we suffer from the same consequence that Eve did. And what was her consequence? Well, one of the things, you know, was that... One of the, yeah, one of the consequences was God said, your husband will rule over you and your desire will be for him in Genesis 3. Ah, and again, everybody goes, oh, sex. It's the sex thing again. No, no, no. It's the control and power thing. You see, it, it, it introduces for the first time this concept that there would be a hierarchy and immediately we like buck up. Oh, my goodness. And so how do you react in situations in your home when things don't go like you think they should? Like, let me just give you a few. Maybe you are sitting here thinking, well, I don't struggle with control. I mean, I'm not a control freak. And I would definitely say that's true of me. I'm not. But I struggle with control in a huge way in my family. Like, let's just give you some examples. What if your child didn't get the class or the teacher you thought he or she should have tempted to call the school and rearrange the things and do a few things and get in there and, you know, start working or whatever? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fix this situation that surely isn't as it's supposed to be, right? Or what if your son, that gifted athlete that he is, made the JV team or the B team when you know he should have been varsity or A team and you're sure and certain you just need to have a good talk with that coach because he's missing some of the gift that lies beneath, okay? Or what about when your husband forgets to take care of the vacation arrangements and didn't, maybe he just didn't pay the deposit and you lose your spot, whatever it is. I mean, I just, I'm just going to do that myself. I mean, that's just, I'm going to take over because obviously you've screwed it up and I'm going to set it right. That's a daughter of Eve, wanting, wanting, wanting control over situations, people, places, things. And then we have not just the pull of control, but the power of death that um, are things we need to be freed from. And that's another effect, a consequence of the fall. And when you read on the Genesis account, you understand God put them out and said they will now suffer decay and death, physical death, and ultimately, if we don't come to God, spiritual death, eternal death. Death ranks as one of the top 25 things Americans are afraid of, and what in the world do you think they're afraid of that for? Well, I think it's clear, I think people haven't really settled the score. They're not sure what's going to happen on the other side. And so they are racked with fear as that time marches on and draws closer and closer. But Scripture's very clear that Christ came to free us from the power of death. Again, we had it as one of our scriptures, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15, that through death, again, he had to be human so he could feel the effect, go through the power of death so that he could conquer death there you go, that through death he might destroy him who has the power of physical death on this earth, that is the devil, and deliver all those, all of us, who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong bondage. Well, there it is, pure and simple. So, so, so easy and so sweet. And our apostle Paul goes on, and spells out how we can have freedom in this life. Not just in the life that's coming thereafter over death, but in this life. It's a real simple three-point thing. And the first is um, the understanding that all of us have sinned and fallen short. There you go. Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He makes it clear. He levels the playing field, and I love that. Maybe my sin was worse than your sin, but you know what? It doesn't matter because there's no sliding scale in heaven, and God doesn't really care if you're gossiping or you know doing whatever else, murdering. I mean, the fact is, we've all sinned. Psht, we're all in the same place, all in the same boat. So then, what's the cost of that? What's the penalty? Well, the penalty is pretty bad because the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death physical and eternal, if you don't turn back, if you don't need someone to rescue you desperately, God, come through as my easer. If you don't need that, the wages is death, eternal separation from God. But the free gift of God, free gift, love free gifts, love free, love that word, the free gift of God is eternal life. Through who? Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, absolutely. Absolutely the free gift of life. It goes right on. That's Romans six twenty three, And there's the gospel, ladies, plain and simple. And if you're sitting here in this room and you have never been freed from your sin, from the power of sin in your life, then I implore you to not leave this room till you get this right. And it's so simple. All you have to do Acts sixteen thirty one says is, but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, saved out of it, saved. Freedom, let freedom fall on me. That's it, pure and simple. Now, a lot of us in this room, though, have taken care of that barrier that exists between God and us, that you've been set free on this earth from the power of sin and death, but maybe you've allowed some sin to creep back in. I don't know what it is. Is it a thought or an action or a situation or a place that is drawing you to hide from God? Again, I love that we went to the creation story because when Adam and Eve sinned, what did God do? He went after them. And he gently, key word, ladies, he gently and lovingly called to them. Where are Adam and Eve? Where are you? You know that game he plays again? Where are you? He knew where they were. He wasn't calling them. He wasn't playing hide-and-seek. He wasn't looking. He knew exactly where they were and exactly what they'd done. But guilt and fear caused him to hide behind the fig leaf, Eve, on my T-shirt. Hide. They were hiding from God. So I think he's asking you, he's calling you, where are you in your relationship with me? If you're hiding, stop. I already know what you've done. I already know where you've been. And I died to set you free from the guilt and shame of whatever that is confess the disobedience, and begin to enjoy a restored, renewed relationship from God that is completely free. And we're going to end with Stephen Curtis Chapman's song, Free. And I'm just going to read the verse out to you, a little bit of what he said, and then we're going to listen to it as we leave here, and it will be our prayer. But he actually wrote this song when he had gone to visit a guy who was on death row. In prison, So he physically went to a prison, and I want you to just listen as he contrasts what that's like to what we are like. The sun was beating down inside the walls of stone and razor wire as we made our way across the prison yard. I felt my heart begin to race as we drew nearer to the place. Where they say that death is waiting in the dark, the slamming doors of iron echoed through the halls where despair holds life within its cruel claws. But then I met a man whose face seemed strangely out of place. A blinding light of hope was shining in his eyes, and with repentance in his voice he told me of his tragic choice that led him to this place where he must pay the price. But then his voice grew strong as he began to tell about the one he said who had rescued him from hell. I'm free. Yeah, I'm free. I've been forgiven. God's love has taken off these chains and given me these wings. And yes, I'm free. Freedom I've been given. It's something that not even death can take away from me. We said a prayer and said goodbye and tears began to fill my eyes as I stepped back into the blinding sun. And even as I drove away, I found that I could not escape. The way he spoke of what the grace of God has done. I thought about how sin had sentenced us, sentenced us to die and how God gave his only son so that you and I could say, if the son has set you free, then you are free Indeed. If the sun has set you free, then you are really, really free, and you have been forgiven. God's grace has broken every chain and given us these wings, and we are free. And the freedom we've been given is not something that even death can take from you and me. It's not something death can take from you and me, because if the sun has set you free today, then you, ladies, are free indeed. Let's go as the song plays and just pray this prayer as you leave. You're free indeed.